Hey, good morning. I'm Playbook co-author Rachel Bade. It's Tuesday, September 19th. The House is in total chaos this morning as conservatives fight not only House Republican leaders, but their own conservative colleagues over how to avert a government shutdown on October 1st. There are still at least 15 holdouts right now, Republicans who are refusing to back this deal that was struck between centrist Republicans and some members of the Freedom Caucus to extend government funding for a month, institute some cuts across the board, and also fortify the border with a new crackdown on immigration. Now, things got pretty ugly and heated yesterday. Congresswoman Victoria Sparks, for example, when she put out a statement saying she would oppose this CR, she called McCarthy a weak speaker and said that he should be fighting harder for the American people. McCarthy responded by knocking Sparks for retiring. Uh, She's actually going to be retiring at the end of the Congress. He said that if she was concerned about fighting stronger, she should run again and not quit. In other places, conservatives were going after conservatives. Uh, Matt Gates was sparring with Byron Donalds, who's another Florida Republican, top Trump ally. Donalds had been one of the key authors of this deal between moderates and centrists. And Gates went after him saying that the deal wasn't good enough. A couple dynamics to keep an eye on this morning. The Problem Solvers Caucus is actually considering a plan B if Republicans can't rally behind a conservative CR. They are threatening to work with Democrats to pass a clean CR uh, and make an end run around the entire majority. We are also hearing that McCarthy told his members in a private leadership meeting last night that he wants his rank and file to take a vote on this CR, regardless of whether or not they actually have the votes. He wants his members to be on record, and he thinks it's going to be hard for conservatives to vote against a bill that the Freedom Caucus leadership actually helped author. We'll see if that gamble actually works out in his favor. And in other news today, a few hundred miles away in New York City, President Joe Biden will be attending the UN General Assembly, where he'll be huddling with world leaders. I spoke last night with our colleague at Politico, senior foreign affairs correspondent Nahal Tuzi, who talked to us about what she's keeping an eye on at this confab. Nahal, what are you watching when it comes to Biden and the UN General Assembly? Look, there's no one single thing that Biden is going to focus on. He's going to tackle a ton of issues from, you know, human rights to the need to continue supporting Ukraine uh, to climate change. That's kind of the nature of the president's speech at the UN General Assembly every year. I mean, that's kind of how it is. If I had to say watch a few things from Biden, I would say watch his language on Ukraine How definitive is it on how much he guarantees continued U.S. support? Watch exactly what he says, but also what the U.S. pledges and does regarding the global South. These are countries in Latin America, Africa, parts of Asia that, you know, have a lot of needs as well as ambitions. And they're kind of tired of the great powers ignoring them or not paying enough attention to them. And then, of course, there's the big rivalry between the U.S. and China that affects all of that, uh, including the war in Ukraine, because China is supporting Russia, but also the global south, because China has made so many inroads with those countries. So what does it mean that leaders from France, Russia, and China are not in attendance this week? Each of the leaders who isn't coming has their own reason, some known, some not known. French President Emmanuel Macron, for instance, he is having a visit from King Charles this week, followed by the Pope. The schedule just wasn't working very well. And, you know, 
Putin isn't really leaving Russia much these days because there's an uh, international criminal court warrant hanging over his head. Now, I'm not saying the U.S. would have arrested him. That's a pretty complicated question, but there are different reasons. But as a whole, there is this sense that other forums like the G20, the G7, that those are a little more crucial because leaders, when they get there, they can get deals done. Unga is kind of more just a place where people come and talk and say things and maybe make some promises. But leader level deals seem to be happening more elsewhere. And especially when you have a UN Security Council that can't really do much because both Russia and China are members and they like to use their vetoes a lot. As of the US, it's kind of paradox. So it makes it a less effective body. That said, it's kind of a thumb in the eye to a lot of other countries, developing countries who don't get invited to the G20 and the G7. And for them, the UN General Assembly is a really important forum. They come here, their leaders come here, they give these speeches, and they want the rest of the world to hear about their country's issues and their country's worries. If you're like the leader of a Pacific island that's really worried about climate change right now. You want U.S. officials to be there and listen to you. And so when when you have a lot of these leaders skipping and kind of suggesting or hinting that they just don't think this forum matters, it really does offend a lot of the developing countries. Does the dysfunction in D.C. affect Biden's pitch about the superiority of the American system in any way? I mean, look, everyone is looking at U.S. politics and wondering what on earth is happening. You know, used to be that there were bitter domestic politics in the U.S., but that when it came to foreign policy, the Republicans and Democrats generally had a pretty solid kind of like consistent type of foreign policy. Some was sometimes it was more muscular than others. I mean, obviously, we can point to certain examples. But what the great fear is that there's going to be just this constant pendulum swing coming from Washington, depending on who's in charge on any given day. There's a lot of worry that if a Republican wins the presidency or more Republicans take over in terms of the House and the Senate, that the aid for Ukraine, the military aid for Ukraine is going to be on the line and that it's just not going to be as reliable. And that's coming not just from Ukrainians, but also Europeans and others who feel really concerned about what that means. So uh, yeah, absolutely. Everyone watches U.S. politics very closely uh, and they definitely see cracks in the system and a certain degree of unpredictability that they don't like. Because if there's one thing you do like in foreign policy, if you're a diplomat, it's predictability. And a shameless scheduling plug this morning. Please join us this evening at Doc 5 for Building the New American Economy. It's going to be a high-level conversation that examines the progress and charts the next steps in preserving America's economic preeminence, driving innovation, and protecting middle-class jobs. My colleague Ryan Lizza is going to be interviewing Jared Bernstein, the chair of the Council of Economic Advisors, and I am going to be interviewing Republicans David Schweikert and Drew Ferguson. You can register online through the link in today's playbook. I'm Rachel Bade. Thanks for listening.